Welcome to What I Wish I Knew by Dental Head Start, your weekly mentoring session thanks to cpdjunkie.com.au. Congratulations, you've landed yourself a job offer. But now, as you sit down and take the time to have a look at the contract you've been given, you start to wonder, what exactly did I sign up for? Welcome back to What I Wish I Knew. My name's Erica Huyen and I hope you've all had a wonderful break. We are kicking off season four of What I Wish I Knew and I am so pleased to welcome the wonderful Mr. Harry Nicolades, who is ranked as one of Australia's leading alternative dispute resolution and litigation lawyers and has had years of experience working specifically with dentists and healthcare practitioners. So he knows all there is to do with the legal side of dentistry. It's job hunting season and whether you're new to the game and looking for your first gig or even if you already have a job under your belt but have always had some questions about the contract that you signed, this is what we cover in this episode. We talk about what the differences are between being an employee versus a contractor and what is all this talk about SFAs or service facility agreements. In this episode, we really bring it back down to basics because much like I said during our episode with Bipesh Kapli about tax and what on earth that is, these are the sort of things that no one teaches us during school. I learned so much from this episode from Harry who has so much experience and knowledge and it really gave me an appreciation for all the people that support us in our dental careers to help us make the right decisions because it really isn't all just about dentistry. So I hope this episode provides you as much insight as it did for me. The reason for the different arrangements exists because a certain type of agreement, firstly, is more appropriate given the relationship between the parties. So the best example of that is an employment contract. At the beginning of a dentist's work life, they need a lot of instruction, supervision, uh, mentoring, um, a whole lot of support and guidance, and they are not aware of um, the um, uh, everything that is involved in, if you like, operating a business of their own, for example, in which case relationship with a practice is, at least in that first year, best reflected in an employment relationship where they get all of those benefits. And there's a lot more certainty about what they are going to be uh, receiving as a result of that. And also the protections that come with a genuine employment relationship. So there are good reasons why um, there are different forms of contractual arrangements for different stages of somebody's um, career. That's why we generally find at the beginning that an employment type relationship is the most suitable. As the dentist becomes more experienced and might um, gain more confidence in the area and wants to have a contractual arrangement that might be more favourable for their own personal financial circumstances, they might want to operate as a business themselves. They might have get their own independent tax advice which says they should set themselves up in a different way that suits their financial needs and their financial goals and their, the structure that they want for their financial arrangements in the future. And when you do that, you then explore the other two forms of contractual arrangements that are available generally, and that is the contractor-type arrangements 
and the services and facilities agreements. Each of them have their own peculiar features, um, but they are collectively, they are the non-employment arrangements that allow greater flexibility for the dentist in terms of how they stru- how they want to structure their own personal financial affairs, both in terms of how they're remunerated for their efforts and how um, that fits in with the financial structure that they want um, in terms of their own financial planning, their own tax arrangements and things of that nature. And so I assume for most of our listeners or people who are looking for um, like going into their jobs, for most of us, this is probably our first proper job really aside from you know perhaps part-time jobs that we've done throughout our education or um previously on the side to studying when could you go into a little bit more detail about just like this typical employer employer employee relationship or contract in terms of when you were saying it's a bit more protected uh, it's a bit more predictable there are benefits could you explain a little bit more about what those kind of entail Sure. Um, just briefly, though, on it, it, it can get um, there are there are quite a lot of details and issues that are, are specifically relevant to an employment relationship. Without delving too far into the details of it, an employment relationship, an employment contract, sets out as does any contract uh, precisely what the obligations and the uh, rights are that the respective parties have agreed to. An employment contract also provides for the additional financial security, if you like, in terms of the certainty about the amount of remuneration. An employment contract and an employment relationship also enjoys the the best protection that's available under the um, fair work regime to make sure that it is obviously an employment relationship has all of the benefits under the fair work regime in terms of protections that are available in relation to unfair dismissal, in relation to any, any practices by the employer that potentially unlawful or do not meet the minimum standards that are expected in terms of how an employer is to treat an employee. Because the employer has that ability to um, control, has that key key feature of an employment relationship is one of being able to control and direct the um, dentist to do their role, uh, but it needs to be done, obviously, uh, in an appropriate way. The obligation on the part of the employee is, of course, to ensure that they comply with lawful directions by their employer. Now, if there are circumstances that arise that, that, that give cause for complaint in terms of the conduct or one of the other, to the extent the contract provides clear guidance as to what is allowed and what's not allowed, um, that's one thing. But then you have overlaying that or underpinning that the protections under the fair work regime that that exists that provides that further layer of protection, if you like, for employees. The difference when you get into the independent contractor arrangements and then the SFAs is you start moving more and more into a commercial relationship rather than that employee, employer, or what we call the master-servant relationship in, in old parlour where all the control and all the power, if you like, is more like more, more readily on the employer's side. And that and so the 
protections that the law provides for employees as a minimum more important. Whereas when you get into the territory of independent contractor arrangements and services and facilities agreements, you have a more even, if you like, bargaining position between the two parties. And uh, it is therefore more important to ensure that the rights and obligations are clearly expressed in those agreements because only in, in certain circumstances can you look beyond that document to see what relief or what options might be available if the relationship becomes um, a little bit difficult. As dentists and dental students, we all have difficult days. You may experience workplace or training demands that have a direct impact on your physical, emotional and psychological health and well-being. This is exactly what dental practitioner support is for. It's a completely confidential and independently run service that's funded by the Dental Board of Australia in an effort to support practitioners and dental students right across the country. Sometimes people call just at the end of a long day to debrief, but sometimes they call because there's more challenging things going on. Dental practitioner support is there for you in these times to give proactive advice, help you improve your health and well-being before there are major concerns. We all need a helping hand sometimes, and it's okay to ask for help. So if you find you need it, call 1-800-377-700 or visit the website dpsupport.org.au. They have loads of great information to get you started. That does make sense. And so what I'm gathering right now is, as you have said, there are kind of three broad categories in terms of arrangements that exist. So you've got the uh, employer arrangement or employer-employee arrangement. You've got the independent contractor, and that kind of gets divided into contractors and then the service and facilities arrangement. Is that correct? Or would you like to correct me on the terminology a little bit? No, that's okay. The, 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 if we just call the independent contractor agreements and the services and facilities agreement, if you just call those non-employment relationships. So the non-employment relationships are the independent contractor agreements and the services and facilities agreements. Each of those are completely different. Those two are, are very different. Do you mind kind of touching a little bit on why they are different? And in particular, SFAs, I feel like is almost this buzzword that's kind of been um, making a much more of a bigger appearance in the last few years. Could you explain a little bit more about it and why these two differ and why they exist? The easiest way to describe it, uh, uh, an SFA, is that the dentist is operating their own business from the premises of the dental practice. And in that sense, you have two different, two different businesses contracting at arm's length and the way in which the arrangement works is that the dentist treats patients at the practice in exchange for which the dentist receives payment of the fees from the health funds and or the patients directly. And what happens at the end of that arrangement is at the end of those services is that the practice collects the fees on behalf of the dentist and then the practice charges the dentist a fee for providing the services and facilities, hence the name, to the dentist to allow the dentist to carry on their practice. So it is two separate organisations where one provides services and facilities, the other one provides services to patients and they are operating independent businesses. Now, 
The difference there then in general terms with an independent contractor arrangement is, I should preface this by saying, this is if it's a genuine independent contractor agreement and if it's a genuine services and facilities agreement. Because there are a lot of contracts and documents around that call themselves one thing, but when you look at the detail, they in fact have features of each of those three arrangements and um, that can be even more problematic. I'll, I'll come to that in a moment. But the independent contractor relationship is one where the dentist is still, dentist is providing services to the practice, but what they are doing there is they are treating practice as patients, they are providing, they are being contracted on the basis that they will provide services to the practice and the practice uh, then pays the dentist for those services that they're providing. And so the difference there when you think about it is think about where the, where the payments are going and from whom. In the SFA arrangement, the payment for the services is going from the, the dentist is paying the practice for the services and facilities fee. And in the contractor independent contractor arrangement, the practice is paying the dentist an amount of money for the services that the dentist is providing to the practice. And you can see then why there's a little bit of, there can be some potential for mischief in, in some contractual arrangements that say independent contractor agreement because it, it's not a long jump in some circumstances from that arrangement to say, well, why is that different to an employment relationship where the dentist is providing services to the practice as an employee? Um, and, and that's why to the extent that there there is scope for, if you like, grey areas, it's that independent contractor arrangement that, that has the greater scope, in my experience, for there to be some blurring of the lines between a contract arrangement and an employment arrangement. And I suppose then the final point to say about that is um, that some documents will say, and a lot of dentists I see give me their contract to review and they say, yeah, I'm under an SFA, and it turns out it's not an SFA. Or they send it to me and they say, yeah, I've got, um, it's it's an independent contractor agreement. And, in fact, everything about it tells me it's, an employment contract dressed up like a, an independent contract uh, uh, agreement. So there's a lot of labelling of documents that don't necessarily reflect what actually the content of the document reveals. Aligners are becoming an integral part of practice. And whether you are new to aligner therapy or an experienced practitioner, the opportunity is vast. But how do you do that well? And how do you do that profitably? Well, Dr. Jeff Hall and Dr. Jesse Green have got together to help you with both of these key problems in aligner therapy. Dr. Jeff Hall is going to teach you how to do clear aligners to a high standard and give you the confidence to be able to treatment plan and troubleshoot your patients. And Dr. Jesse Green is going to show you how to do this more efficiently, more profitably, and to get more patients like these into your practice. Solving these problems and getting you profitable in clear aligners is what Clear Aligner Excellence, their new education platform, is all about. It also gives you huge discounts on the aligner lab fees. There's almost no reason not to find out more. Clearex.com.au I see. 
I do want to dive into, and I think we'll follow it up on when you say um, the gray areas and things we should be looking out for when reviewing the contract. But before we dive into that, I do just want to ask, I, I know this is probably a difficult question to just give a simple black or white answer to, and I understand there are, a little, there are a lot of nuances to it, but are there is there really like a more favorable contract to be a part of? You did mention before, perhaps it's very dependent on our stage in our career, whether we're a recent grad or whether we're later on and we want to have a bit more of that financial freedom to things. But is there really like a reason which would make SFAs more favorable or, you know, and how does it differ from, I guess, an imp- the, the imp- I guess, the dentist's perspective and then like the employer, I guess, in terms of which arrangements are more favourable. Yeah, when, when you when you say what's more favourable, what might be favourable to you would be different to what I think is favourable for me. So that's the first thing that's important to, to recognise that different people want different things out of a contractual relationship. These are all contractual relationships that we're talking about and some of them, each of them have their own advantages and to the extent potential disadvantages. So each of them, whenever you are looking at uh, whatever contractual arrangement is put in front of you, you need to weigh up the pros and cons of one form of arrangement over another. Um, an employment type contract, an employment contract is very specific about what rights and obligations exist. It sets out a standard kind of relationship. It's one of, as I say, uh, employer-employee relationship, which has, which carries with it certain very well-established rights and obligations, and also enjoys the protections, as I said before, in the main by the um, uh, fair work regime. So that's perhaps the best way to put it: is there is less potential for anything controversial to arise about the meaning of the terms that have been agreed in that contract, in that employment contract. That's not to say there aren't disputes about employment relationships. There are plenty of those. But as to how the relationship is defined and how it's been created, um, there's a certain premise upon which the arguments and the, the rights and obligations flow if it's an established, if everyone agrees and it's an established employment type relationship, there are certain things that flow. Um, disadvantages, uh, I mean, obviously then there's all the benefits of an employment contract and I won't go into those, but, you know, things like superannuation, insurance, workers' comp insurance is covered and all of that sort of thing. So all of those things provide some benefits, known, certain and protected in, you know, um, in the main by what's in the contract and also by statute. When you move into then, though, the, we'll just call them the commercial arrangements, so not the non-employment relationships. When you move into those, it's really then, well, okay, I'm not going to get these other benefits. I'm not going to get a minimum period of notice or a holiday pay and superannuation and all of those things. That's not to say people don't try to throw it in there which makes for more mischief, of course. You then are structuring your relationship and also the the financial benefit you get from it in a different way. Your employer doesn't deduct tax for you. You're responsible for all of that. You get a different, uh, you get the, the funds under the contractor arrangement in a different way. You're providing invoicing. You're providing your services. When you get to an SFA, you are being invoiced by the practice. So you would be asked to set up your own company. And so you see how that 
then carries with it other financial and other tangible benefits of effectively at the SFA end, you're running your own business. So that carries with it the potential to structure your affairs in a way which is consistent with you running your own business. And then you get into, you know, your um, tax advice and your structuring advice and what you can do with that company otherwise. And we get into territory then where, you know, the likes of accountants and weigh into giving advice as to how to set that up and in what way. And there are financial benefits in doing that. I see. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, thanks for clarifying that, Harry. What I wanted to then talk about is just, okay, so we kind of have an understanding of these different structures that exist. So let's now fast forward to, okay, we've just gone for our job interview and we've ex- been offered a position and they've given us a contract. Now, as dentists, we're probably given a stack of documents and reading it and probably not quite understanding all of it. And I wanted your thoughts on really what should we do when we receive this contract and do we necessarily need to run it by a lawyer and I guess what kind of things are common mistakes that people might fall into if they're not properly reviewing and understanding all the details in what they're signing before they begin work? The answer to that depends what document is put in front of you, probably the the starting position. Um, If it is an employment contract, and it's labelled that way, and you understand that you're going to be an employee, then um, it's more likely to follow a particular form if it's a comprehensive agreement and if it covers off on all of the key things that everybody knows are involved in an employment relationship. It's less likely, if on reviewing it, it is that, it's less likely that you would critically need to get legal advice about it. Should you get some advice about it if you're concerned, if you don't understand it? Absolutely. But you've got to be careful about what you spend in doing so as well. I mean, you put on a contract worth X, by all means, if, it, if, if, it, if you don't understand it at all, then absolutely get some advice about it. And it may well be that, you know, running it past uh, a lawyer or a other service that um, perhaps the associations might have available in terms of some preliminary advice might be sufficient um, for you. Everybody can read the agreement, do their own research in relation to, you know, key features of it. There's lots of services that are available that for, I'll call them a vanilla type arrangement in relation to employment contract, you should be able to navigate your way through. Um, If you then feel that you still don't understand it, by all means, um, get some advice about it. When we get into the territory of the, we'll we'll call them the the other commercial arrangements, they're ones which, in my view, because based on what I I see on a day-to-day basis with these things, um, they're ones which you would certainly benefit from getting some advice about because, as I said before, a document that's called something may may have features that don't belong in that document. Because it's a commercial type docu- commercial arrangement that you're entering into, if it's the first one that you're doing, but the, the 20th one that the practice owner is doing, they know what they want in it. They know they've done this 20 times, 50 times, whatever. If it's the first time you're doing it, you don't know what to look for um, and you don't know whether the, the possibility exists that you should be trying to negotiate a change in those terms. Leave aside the characterization of the relationship. Think also about what the terms are of the arrangement. It may well be that by getting some advice, you can um, seek to agree 
a change to some of the terms of that agreement, which are more favourable to you. If you're getting into territory like the uh, an SFA um, as well, in particular, that's something which you just don't do off on a whim. That's something that you should definitely get be getting advice, uh, and even for the other commercial arrangement, getting some advice from um, your accountant about how you need to be set up for that, how you should be set up for that, whether you're going to be a sole trader or whether you're going to set up a company. So they're kind of things which then require some accountant's input. Uh, And certainly from my point of view, if you're being asked to sign an SFA, unless you are confident that that is what it is you are being asked to sign and you are happy and understand what the terms are, then you should get some advice about it. Again, be judicious about the amount of advice you get. You may need to, um, you know, me giving you advice about something might only take a couple of hours, but somebody else might want to change it in a certain way or need a more in-depth advice or need advice on a whole lot of things that you don't need advice about. So you, you could be spending, could be asking somebody to spend a couple of hours on it or you could be asking someone to spend 10 hours on it. So from a cost perspective, know what you're getting in for there as well because um, lawyers generally will charge on a on an hourly basis and different lawyers will charge at different rates. Um, and the important thing about that is, of course, to also go to somebody who has demonstrated experience in looking at these kind of arrangements so they actually um, can give you an informed opinion about what that document says and what it means and, and um, then you can make your mind up about whether you sign it, ask for some changes to it, or reject it. Absolutely. I'm gathering that it probably makes the most sense that, you know, whilst you're reviewing the contract, this is really the time for you. If there's any issues you have, any concerns, any negotiations that you want to make, now should be the time for you to get that clarified before you sign. What happens if you have signed and later on you start encountering issues, whether that be things that you personally aren't happy with or even if it's like your employer, I guess, not fulfilling things that were written on the contract. What happens when you get into these sticky situations? Different categories of problems can arise and some things have a a relatively um, straightforward answer to them. Uh, Other things can get very um, messy and complicated. If, for example... It is quite clear in the contract that a certain agreement was reached on a certain aspect of the of the um, of the relationship, um, and if there's no doubt and it's clearly expressed there, um, if the dentist looking at it goes, "Oh, I don't even I don't even remember reading that," and certainly um, if I did, I didn't understand it. Um, yeah. um, I don't like it. What can I do about it? Well, the starting position is. Um, if it's uh, been signed that the other side will say, well, you agree to it, you had an opportunity to review it, um, I'm, you're, you're quite able and capable of going and getting your own advice about it, um, you've signed it, you've agreed to it, I'm holding you to it. There's always the fact that two parties have agreed to something um, generally means that's what they need to abide by. But there, uh, in that situation, it might may well be um, possible to say to have a conversation. Which, depending upon what the issue is, um, the other side might go, "Well, look, you know, I can hold you to that, or maybe we can agree to vary that, to change it in some way, to um, make sure you're to because I want to, want the relationship to continue. And if that's a problem issue, then 
why don't we um, agree to change that? Nobody's bound to change it. You're not obliged to, but unless the relationship has become completely toxic, then there might be an opportunity to agree, if you like, a variation to that contract. And that might work both ways. So that's if something is there that was always there and you agreed, but you just didn't realise it was it was it meant what it meant. Let's say it's binding, but there might be a prospect of, of you changing. But have that conversation. Other problems that might arise is where, again, it's clear what the obligation is, but somebody just breaches it intentionally. Uh, or not intentionally, just inadvertently, but the effect of it is they're not fulfilling their obligation. The agreement will contain usually, any agreement will usually contain the consequences for any breach of those obligations. And in that situation, sometimes people call the other side on the breach, sometimes they don't, because it may well be that they go, oh, it doesn't matter, or it doesn't trouble me. Or, okay, I, you know, instead of giving you two weeks' notice of something, I only gave you four days. And the other side goes, okay, well, that's enough. You should have given me this, but whatever. Um, the more serious the breach is, the greater the consequences, the more likely you're going to be called on it going both ways. So the point about I'm trying to make there is if there's a breach, what is it? How serious is it? What does the agreement provide, whatever agreement you're looking at, in terms of the consequences of that breach? What are the remedies that are potentially available? Um, and the bigger the breach, the greater the potential loss or damage to whoever it is that's the innocent party there. And that's when you definitely should... Um, get some advice about what your rights are that you can do or, or if you're the one that's in breach, what are the potential consequences to you yeah. for that so that you can know what, what that, well, I potentially have a, a liability for the breach that I've committed and the consequences of that are I might be ordered to pay an amount of money or I might be prevented from doing something, whatever that is you need to know what the consequences are of of your breach um, or of the other side's breach. And that's where you should definitely get advice. The range of matters that you could be in breach that, that could create this situation is enormous, from minor breaches to really serious breaches like, um, you know, uh, a breach of a, of a restraint obligation or, or um, you know, utilising confidential information um, of the practice or soliciting staff from the practice to go somewhere else when you leave. All of those kind of things, are, you know, they're quite serious breaches. But at the other end, there might be minor breaches which um, don't have such serious consequences but are still actionable if one party wants to take the point on them. I think building on from that topic then or what you've just mentioned just then, is there a general uh, duration for how long contracts exist and what about this idea of like terminating contracts and I think I just wanted to build on this idea of consequences as in like what consequences are they are they like fine uh, I guess monetary con consequences I guess restraint from practice or you know what does that kind of entail the term of a contract is the subject of the agreement itself um, if you have a permanent employee, if you're under a, uh, an employment contract um, that is, it, it, could, it could range, as you know, that there's a, a range of types of employment contracts. They could be casual arrangements. They could be part-time arrangements. They could be um, permanent arrangements. They can be 
maximum term arrangements where it is limited in time. And so there's a variety of provisions that apply depending upon the type of contract that you want. Contractor arrangements, SFAs as well, can have different um, terms in them um, uh, in terms of duration, in terms of notice of bringing them to an end. It's probably sufficient to say there is no one single duration that applies to each of those contracts. In permanent employment type relationships, of course, the intention is that it is a permanent arrangement. So there's no end date in that sense. And that's why there are uh, notice provisions, for example, that need to be provided. Um, You have those probation periods as well that are available in them. Um, uh, So there are, but the the features of that arrangement are intended to be, you know, obviously a long-term arrangement. And bringing that to an end otherwise than in accordance with the contract could have consequences one way or the other. So outside of that, you then get to the in the in the commercial arrangements notice provisions where they say that uh, sorry term and notice provisions where it says this contract's in force for twelve months. After that twelve months, uh, in that twelve months, for example, under an SFA, um, it's a twelve month contract or it's a five year contract or whatever period the parties might agree, uh, and it might say that. The contract can be brought to an end by either party giving one month's notice or something like that. So there are notice provisions that are built into um, those contracts. In terms of the the rest of your question, which is um, geared towards things like, you know, uh, what are the consequences or the um, restraints that might exist and, and, and what have you. Again, they're a matter for the contract as to what how you specify what it is that constitutes a restriction, um, whether that's a reasonable restriction um, and therefore whether it's enforceable. So they're questions which lawyers love to ponder over and um, say, you know, as we say, reasonable minds might differ about whether something is reason- uh, reasonable or enforceable or not. In terms of the consequences of that, as you said, as I said before, breaches of that or um, it might be monetary compensation. It might be uh, restrictions on what you can do and where, who you can contact, what information that you might have collected you can use, what information if you've breached and and taken information uh, you have to return, what promises or undertakings you have to to give in order to satisfy someone that you... um, uh, will not be causing them harm by your conduct going into the future and for what period of time we call those undertakings. So there's a range of consequences that can affect what you are permitted to do and uh, what you're not permitted to do when you end the relationship. I see. Harry, my mind has just been very overwhelmed <laughs> with this whole new world of va- vocabulary that I had no idea previously about. I want to wrap up this segment, but I wanted to ask you, do you have any just parting words of wisdom from you know all your experience practicing as a lawyer for so many years to, I guess, people looking for a job or especially new grads who are you know about to start job hunting? Any just, you know, words of wisdom or tips that you might give them? best advice I can give them is this. 
Read carefully anything that is put in front of you. Clearly have the ability to understand what is being written in front of you and what is being presented to you. Take your time. It's a big decision. Take your time with that. I mean, everyone's done their, um, completed their tertiary studies. They can work their way through a contract if they can work their way through the numerous texts and um, uh, literature that they had to get through to get their degree um, <laughs> or, or other studies, of course. So take your time to read it. And then having done that, the next best thing to do is make a list of the, of the things that immediately occur to you as um, uh, unanswered, unanswered questions in your mind. So you can prepare that list. You might then do your own research about that. For example, you know, it's amazing the resources that are available um, to anybody online these days to search what are the key what are the key things that I need to be concerned about. You might answer half your questions with your own research. Beyond that, um, reach out to organisations if you need to, your own associations and otherwise, as to what additional help you can get. Um, in terms of answering the unanswered questions or getting some assistance with the document that's been put in front of you. Um, you can see that all of those activities that I've just mentioned, including the last one, if in doubt about everything and you just need help from an accountant or a lawyer, then go and get their help. You can see that all of those activities are geared towards giving you the best information to allow you to make an informed decision to enter into that arrangement or not, and on what terms. Information is power, as we say, and if you are informed by your own research, your own reading, and tapping into available resources, up to the point where you might even need to spend some of your own money to get some professional advice, once you're armed with that, you know exactly whether you want to enter into that arrangement, whether you want it changed in any way, um, and then when you sign it, you know exactly what you're getting yourself in for. And not only, I'd say that sounds like in a negative way, um, you've obviously uh, contributed to the terms on which you are happy to have that relationship. And, and obviously it's a two-way street. You get a benefit from that contract. You want to maximise the benefit out of it. You want to maximise the protections you get. And to the extent you can negotiate the best terms that are available to you, you're only in a position to do that once you're informed by all of those things that I just mentioned. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.